I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside this morning, and we're glad that you're able to be here with us. Some of you are returning after being away for a few months in traveling. Some of you are visitors, but we welcome all of you here, and we're glad that you're able to be here. The passage for today was decided upon over a year ago, and just this entire week, though, I felt this, the goodness of God and his kindness that this would be the Sunday that we would walk through the eighth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes since we're now just within weeks of an election as a nation. And there aren't as many passages in the Bible that are just as applicable to considering the implications of our relationship as believers with the powers and the rulers and authorities that are put in place than Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So we're going to be there. But before that, we have a couple of things coming up. I went to a place this week and saw Christmas decorations already out and about, and so we are getting towards the end of the year, and it's, can't we get our candy bars first and then turkey at Thanksgiving and before we go into that? But no, we're, we're getting ready, and uh, our, our eye is towards that as we think about the year end. So actually in two weeks, together as a church, we're going to participate in Operation Christmas Child, and there will be a, a packing party here on a Sunday evening. And then the week after that, on the 20th, we'll have a congregational meeting where it's our opportunity as a church family to go over the year in 2016 and then to look forward to what God uh, desires and, and might be drawing us into as we consider 2017. And so we hope that on November 20th, you can mark that down in your calendar as a time to be with us in the evening. We would have done the meeting tonight, except when we saw that the Indians were in the World Series, we said, why create a conflict between those two things? That's not true, but yes, you should be watching tonight and enjoying. It's also very applicable to the book of Ecclesiastes to enjoy the moments when you have them because you never know when those moments will come back again. Uh, so we hope you'll do that. I had a weird experience this week. I was actually in Texas for most of it in Dallas and I was, uh, at a, went to a store and this lady asked me where I'm from and I said, I'm from Ohio. No joke. She said, Ohio, I really want to move to Ohio. I said, you, you have family? You have, she's like, it's cold there, right? It's, so you know that. Like, you're not mistaking Ohio with something else. Like that. She's like, yeah, no, I, want, I really want to move there one day. It's like, God bless you. We would love to have you. That is an incredibly <laughs> rare thing to ever hear. But the word is getting out. I wouldn't quite say it the way LeBron said it on, on Tuesday night um, in, in his phrase, but it is a good time to be from here. And so we should all enjoy the moment. But now I'll invite you, we'll get a little more serious. We'll go to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, and we'll read from it. We're continuing in a series, so if you're only joining us for today, we're going through this Old Testament book, which we've said is itself a sermon. So this is a series of sermons on a sermon, and the opening passage that the preacher is reflecting on for his audience is vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And so for most people, when they heard that, and that was going to be the the theme of the sermon, probably were not excited and thought, wow, what, what are we in for today? But the book doesn't end there. The sermon doesn't end in vanity. It ends in hope. And that's actually how Paul describes all of the Old Testament in Romans chapter 8 and then in chapter 15 that says everything that was written was written down for our encouragement and our endurance that we would abound in hope. And this book, though it has a critique of a variety of things we experience in the world, does that critique in order to draw us into finding our hope in something that endures and lasts forever. So hopefully you're there by now. It's on page 557 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise? 
And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place in the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness or the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. And then I saw all the work of God, but man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. <clears throat> Titled the message, Judgment Now and Then. This passage talks about judgment, the reality of it, of authorities and governing structures that are in our society, and characteristics of them now, but also what they point to in the reality of a future judgment. So first of all, we'll just consider judgment now. As he's considering life under the sun, life as it is, he gives us an instruction in verse 2 to keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. This is pretty profound. There is a judgment that is instituted by God that rules in our day and age in the present. And he says that we are to honor that rule and that authority because it's given by God. So it doesn't say, keep the king's command because the king's the nicest person you ever met and the king has your best interests at heart. But he says there is an oath that God has with those who rule. And there is an accountability that everyone who rules has before God. And so those of us who fear God and love him and desire to honor him should be those who then recognize the authority structures that he has put in place. That's the, the, one of the first things that we have to accept when we look at life as it is. 
There is in how God works a way in which he's designed the world that we don't come into the world ourselves born fully knowing what we need to know, capable of getting the food that we need to get, aware of how to access the water or the milk that our bodies are necessary for us to have. When we're born into this world, we are born entirely dependent upon other people. And if someone in a position of authority does not care for us, we cannot care for ourselves. That doesn't take away for any of us the value of our lives or diminish them to acknowledge their, our dependence upon them. There's something about our dependence upon other people that draws us into what also God desires, which is human community and connection. And that those of you who've experienced the authority over someone completely dependent upon you have realized just how much it's humbled you. <laughs> to one, know how not qualified you are for such authority <laughs> and how much you need God's help and wisdom and strength to ever assume that kind of authority wisely. But just like in a microcosm of the human family experience, in the macrocosm, somebody has to make decisions. Somebody has to be entrusted with authority to rule and to reign. If we all together had to make, by a vote, every decision that needed to take place just for the life of the church, nothing would ever happen. It wouldn't. I mean, yesterday, a whole bunch of work got done outside because 20 guys showed up and just did it. If every single time they planted a bush or a flower or this or that, we had to get a vote of 200 different people to say, do they like this or do they like that? It, in about 20 years from now, things would be put wherever they're supposed to be. And by the time it happened, most of the people would have offended each other by not supporting the other person's idea that they wouldn't even be around to enjoy it anymore. That's something just as simple as landscaping. But when it comes to ordering our society, where as a whole society we get our water sources from and how we ensure that they're not polluted so that we all can have a sense of security and safety when we consume it or how waste is handled so that we aren't, um, it, it isn't too closely to us. Someone can pick it up and take it somewhere where it needs to be. For societies to flourish, for human beings to experience life as God intends, someone has to rule, someone has to make decisions. It is not possible for all of us to have a say in every decision as it goes on. And also, it's true that no one person can make all the decisions that are necessary and that need to be made. So we can't all participate in every vote but no one person is smart enough or wise enough to be able to make all of the decisions that need to be made for us. And so we saw that in, in earlier in Old Testament history when Moses is given authority over the entire nation. And now they're free from Pharaoh. They're free from oppressive rule. They're going to have a new system of government. They realize really quickly, but you know what? Moses can't do this on his own. If everyone keeps only going to Moses and asking Moses what we need to do, we're going to burn him out so fast, we're not going to exist. And so they have to break it down in smaller chunks and appoint rulers and leaders and elders over smaller units of authority and government. Otherwise, the nation would have been even more vulnerable if too much authority was only entrusted to one person. 
Excuse me. And that's a tension all throughout the scripture. Someone has to rule. Someone has to be empowered to make decisions. But it's also a dangerous thing if someone can rule with too much power. And so in the life of Israel, they were very careful to say, if you're a priest and you're the high priest, you should not also be the king. There has to be a division of authority and responsibility and power that is good both for the king and for the high priest. Because if that ever gets concentrated in simply one person and one office, and then that person does not have the moral character and integrity to use it for the good of the people, then that'll be a horrible situation. And so we know the necessity of rule and reign, but we also know the risk in ever giving someone authority over another person. And all of that tension is described here in chapter 8, and we see it lived out all throughout human history. But someone has to rule. There has to be authority structures in place. Because if there ever really is anarchy and no one's in charge, because of the fallenness of our own nature, that doesn't go well. I mean, just think of it, if you're a parent of kids, if you were to say, hey, we're sending our kids to school today, but it's the teachers have a holiday today. So there's not going to be any teachers, and there's going to be no principals, no counselors. It's just the student day. You know how they sometimes have the teacher day, and there's no kids? Let's try the reverse. Let's have all the students show up, but no authority. None of you would send your kid to that type of a scenario because you know it won't be authority less for long. Someone's going to say, I run this place. And usually the person who will say that is not the person that you want running the place. And so even when authority is suspect, even when we know all of the temptations that it is prone to, it is still, even in human history, when we're looking at a macro level, better for a city and a country to have leadership in place that is questionable than to experience life where no one knows who's leading. In, in the Old Testament, the book of Judges is, is, is described in this way when it says at the end of the book that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, it's, it's a fascinating way to say it because it could have just as easily said, and everyone did what was wrong. Everyone did what was sinful, and it would be true. But the writer says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you and I know, just because we know our own human hearts, that when everyone's given equal authority and we all just get to decide for ourselves what we want to do, it is not a situation that we want to live in. And the book of Judges is one of the darkest books in the Bible of all kinds of atrocities that are committed against groups of people and individuals while everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. <clears throat> there is an authority that is put in place that is to be honored by all those who acknowledge the authority of God. And the preacher knows that that means at times we will give respect and honor to the office of authority even when we might not respect the person who's in that authority. And that's not a new problem. That's not something we're facing now. That's something consistent throughout human history. 
How do we at times show respect for the office and what it represents, but at the same time challenge and critique when we see abuses of authority that are in place? But there must be judgment now. I mean, he goes on in verse 14. He says, there's a vanity I've seen that the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and then the deeds of the wicked who somehow prolong their lives. So he's acknowledging this doesn't always work out for every individual person in the best way. I've observed life and I've seen someone who should have been rewarded, but they got punished and somebody who should have been punished and they were rewarded. And so there's no perfect system. There's no structure that ultimately can be where our hope rests and lies. Uh, two weeks ago, I was uh, going, uh, leaving in the morning now. We live right across the street from a school building, but it's not an elementary school anymore, so it's not a school zone anymore, and so I can park my car in the street, so, which is helpful just because we have a very narrow driveway to get in and out. So my car was parked in the street. I walked out to it to leave and then realized that most of the contents that were inside containers in the car were now outside. And I was like, oh, shoot. I think someone went through my car last night. So I walk around, and um, I have a really dumb habit of keeping my wallet in my car. So I was like, shoot. So I went to where my wallet usually is, and it wasn't there. So I was like, oh, mm, this is not how I was kind of hoping to start the day today. And then I looked, and the, my wallet was flipped upside down on the, my driver's seat. I said, okay. Well, I don't know if anything's in there or not. So I pick it up, and all my cards are still there, and my insurance card, and my driver's license are still there. And the cash is gone. There wasn't a lot of cash in it. And I almost never have cash in it. But the cash was gone. And as I looked around, everything else seemed to be there. And I tried to scope it out enough. Do I really need to like cancel all my cards and make sure no one's stealing my identity at this point? Didn't seem like it. Um, but I'm also, I just don't want to create extra work for myself. And so if I can avoid doing that. And I said, should I even call a police officer or not? I said, they, there's a lot bigger problems out there than losing 20 bucks. Like, why would I waste a police officer's time for this? But then I thought, I don't know if any of my neighbors have experienced something similar. And if something's happening and it's, there's something going on, then I probably should just mark it down. So I call um, the non-emergency line and a police officer comes out. And uh, <clears throat> I meet him out there. And the first thing he you know, asks me is, who's Amy? Because the license plate is registered in Amy's name. And so I said, that's my wife. And so he walks me through. So yeah, this is just a teenager. Um, they do this. It's actually nice that he like, kept your wallet in the car. We usually find the wallet like two, three houses down. Um, but everything's in it. They just want the cash. You don't have to go you know, cancel all your credit cards and stuff. You're probably fine. So thank you. So I didn't want to waste your time. You got more important things to do. He's like, no, no problem. I'm gonna, our statistics department likes to know this stuff. So he drives away. Now I'm like, okay, I can move on for my day. And then the car pulls back. And Amy says, hey, he's coming back to our house. Pulls in our driveway. I said, okay. So I go out. And he says, what's your wife's social security number? I'm like, gentlemen, do any of you know your wife's social security number? I have no idea what my wife's social security number. Okay, one guy raised his hand. So I said, no, but she's here. He's like, oh, she's here. Have her come out. So she comes out. We both go to the car. And he says, give me your social security number. So she does. He's got it up on his screen. He's looking at it. And she gives it to him, and the number she gives is on his screen. He says, look at this. And there's someone with a felony warrant out for their arrest in the state of Florida that has her social security number attached to it. And so we're looking at it, and I'm like, so you're saying I'm married to a criminal? <laughs> yep, and a male criminal. So um, apparently. So wow, so wait a minute. So like, if I get pulled over for a busted headlight or something, he's like, yeah. Any officer 
that types in this license plate is going to see this rap sheet. Oh, okay. I'm, I just paid 20 bucks to find that out. That's really helpful information <laughs> to know. I would have given the guy more money to find that out because it totally affects if I get pulled over sometime in the next little bit, hopefully I'll be even more cautious in how I behave because they will likely be coming to the vehicle assuming that there is someone who is on the run. Now to fix that, we had to call the Florida parole office or something and say, hey, here's the problem. They said, well, what we have to do is we have to mail you paperwork. You have to go get fingerprinted, and then that fingerprint will go. It's going to take a couple months to resolve. And so you look at that, and you just say, wow, that, I mean, that's incredibly inefficient. Like there's a, a male convicted with a felony. She's a female. Nothing matches on them, but it's going to take months before on paper it looks the same, and I'll no longer be married to um, a, a male with a felony. <laughs> And you say, that, that's a really slow way of, any of you who are business owners know you can't take two months to resolve something like that. You'll be out of business if it takes that long. So there's an incredible inefficiency to government, but also who's going to be the person I call when my car gets broken into? And who is doing the hard work to go after someone who's running from them and who might desire their harm? Someone has to rule and there's a way to respect authority while still acknowledging no authority is perfect and there have to be checks and balances in the authority structures that happen. Hopefully I won't get pulled over in the next couple of months. But if I do and I end up in jail, I've already told you my story. So don't <laughs> believe whatever else you hear. Someone has to rule and reign now. And as we come into now in just two weeks in election time, one of the fascinating things is it's just part of our own American story that we are suspicious of people who rule. We are. I mean, part of the founding of our nation was this rebellion against an empire, and what do they know? And well, We don't need a king, we just do this ourselves. And so we have a suspicion against people in authority. And for any of you who are saying, well, you know, we have two candidates, I wish we had more candidates. Well, we did have more candidates. We had more candidates in the primary system. These were the two that got picked. Particularly in the Republican Party, there was like 50 candidates or something running for the office. And if you took the three, though, that were polling the best, which was Donald Trump, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina. I never know how exactly how to say her last name. The three of them together, though, represented about 70% of the vote. And the three of them together have never served in public office. So that the spirit at which they were rising to power was one of suspicion of those in authority. So that everyone else who was in a position of authority and said, hey, I'm a governor and I've done this and that, and hey, I'm a senator, I've done... It just, no, 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 we don't trust you people anymore. Just any of you. We've seen you use authority in this way, and so it was, it was almost a protest against those who rule. But here's the irony. But you're still going to have to vote for someone. So who do you trust to rule in such a way that won't abuse the ruling office, but somebody has to rule. So you can't only ever be in critique mode. All of us can sit down and critique people who have responsibility that we have and sit in offices that we don't sit and assume that we would do a better job. But the reality is someone has to sit in that office. Someone has to make decisions for the good of people. And so we also have to be able to articulate a positive vision of what ruling well looks like and what kind of rulers we want, not just what kind of rulers we don't want. 
and then recognizing however you vote, whoever gets into office, we're all likely to experience this tension of someone's ruling, someone's in authority, that person's not perfect, there's a whole bunch of people and decisions being made, I'm not sure, and yet the command to all of us as Christians is to say, so one, on election day, go vote, or go vote now, because you have a responsibility to do it. And you have the freedom to do it. You can do it early. You don't have to wait. Participate in the process as God has given it to you. But in that participation, also recognize that we want to be able to articulate a positive vision, that God has made an oath with whatever rulers are in charge. They're accountable to him as well. And we want to honor the office of how people serve, whether or not we completely agree with the person because someone has to rule. But another way you see that we don't really respect the office tremendously is what we pay them, right? No one should get a pay cut becoming the President of the United States. But increasingly, that will actually be the reality. And just think of the city of Cleveland. Play for the Cavs, you make a lot of money. You're the mayor of the city, you don't make a lot of money. What? If we want to increasingly recruit the best and the brightest to serve, but part of that is our suspicion. Well, we can't give them that much because if we give them that much, who knows what they're going to do with it? And it's that tension. So how do we honor them and respect them, but yet we don't... What are the ways that we show that honor and what are the ways that we show that respect that we try to get people to serve when anyone who serves... Here's the thing, and they say it among themselves. You step into arena when you run for public office. And you get ripped by everyone from all sides. And every aspect of your life gets critiqued. And those of us who've never put our head up to invite that kind of a critique should also have a little sense of respect for whoever it was. No, they're mostly going to suffer a lot to rule and to reign. I don't have to make a ton of decisions tomorrow morning that affect millions of people. Some people are waking up tomorrow morning and how they decide and what judgment they make affects millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. And I'm thankful I'm not making any decisions tomorrow that affect hundreds of millions of people. But someone does. There's no robot we can just transition that to and say, make the perfect decision every time you have to make it. Any of you have just tried to type something in your phone and figured out they don't know what word you're trying to use Imagine giving all that kind of authority to anything other than the human brain. You don't want to do it. You want someone who can rationalize and empathize and think, who can listen. So someone must judge now. And he says, there's also a judgment coming forward. There's a judgment in the future in verses 10 through 13. He says, you know, the way this has worked out, I've seen the wicked buried, and they've been praised in the city, people that shouldn't have been praised in the city. But, verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. And this he's talking about the future judgment. That every authority that is in place and every judgment that exists right now on this earth in whatever capacity they do, good or bad, they point to the reality that all of us will stand in judgment one day. 
And he says, those who fear God, it will be well with them. And those who don't, whatever capacity they've been entrusted with authority in this world, they will not be. And that is something that should give us as Christians, as we engage the process in our own day, a a bit of a calmness. Not a bit of a calmness, a calmness, a strength, a resilience, an endurance to say, I don't know and I can't understand all the burdens that everyone faces and who should be doing this or that. But I do believe that the one person who is thoroughly good and pure will one day judge us all. And those who fear God, those who love him, those who live according to what he said and who put their dependence in him, for them it will be well. It might not be well for the next five years. It might not be well for the next 500 years. But we believe that there is a day when all will be made well. And that's what we long for. And believing that should give us the resources that we need to respect and honor all of the mess that the process is here and now. We don't want to run from it. We don't want to abandon it. But we realize we're not going to bring the kingdom on earth in the next 30 days. This won't all of a sudden become paradise on earth. There is a future judgment coming. There is one who knows everything we don't know, and he will make things well in his time. But we don't want to use that as an excuse to disengage, but as an invitation to participate without being fearful, to make decisions without being motivated by guilt, to pray to him, to honor him, and to accept the authorities and the structures that he's put in place. Then in a surprising way, he says, when you think about the judgment now and the judgment then, he says, if we really believe that, we should be able to experience joy now and then. It almost catches us off guard in verse 15. And so I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. So I just told you to be obedient to rulers even though those rulers might not always be the best rulers and find ways to critique them and this all just feels dirty and everyone feels like they should go take a shower after something like this. But instead of saying, now I commend to you despair, I commend to you anxiety, I commend to you worry, he says, and so I commend to you joy. Do we really believe in God? Do we really, really trust in him? and that he's wiser than we are, and he's stronger than we are, and he knows more than we are, he's better than we are. And so when we rest in him and when we trust in him, we can engage the realities of now and then, and we can do it with joy. That it will be well with us in the future, but it can also be joyful among us here and now. It really can be. So how is that going to (laughs) happen? By faith like everything else that happens. When we, by faith, trust in God, in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his authority, we can experience joy here and now, even the persecutions that come, even in the temptations that come, we can experience joy. We we commemorate at this time of year, uh, for those of us who are in the Protestant tradition, uh, the Reformation. And depending on who you talk to, for some people, they understand it as a revolution away from authority. 
But it was not a revolution away from authority. It was a reformation specifically inviting people in positions of authority to go back and accept primarily the authority of scriptures over them. And so for the rest of the time, anyone who led a movement in the Reformation had to justify, well, aren't you, if we just go your direction, aren't we just going to let go of structure and let go of society and no one should be in charge? And regularly they had to write, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. We're, we're challenging people in positions of authority not to abuse that authority. But if they who are in authority kick us out, then we're out because they have the authority. And so those who are excommunicated and sent on and you're not allowed to fellowship and you're not allowed to partake in the communion, they were punished, but they did not start by desiring a revolution away from authority, but in ways that were possible to them to inviting those in positions of authority to submit to the greater authority, which is God himself and Jesus Christ and through the word that he's given. And so this is one of the hymns written by Martin Luther who is in the midst of all of that. And this is how he describes the context of what it cost him to put his head above the fray and experience all of the critique from everywhere. He still said, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be able to open to your word written so long ago and to see its enduring relevance and application to all of the tension and the struggle that we experience in our world. And when we find ourselves confronted with our own, the limitations of our mind to, to understand it or to know what the direction is going forward, we pray that you would help us to be a people who in a unique way experience the joy of the Lord as our strength. That we can have that joy now as we anticipate that joy in the future. And that through that joy we would be a light to our neighbors. Not that we would ever come across as the people who figured it out and to be arrogant among them, but that we have reasons for joy, reasons for hope, reasons to engage the world and all of its mess. We thank you for every person who is running to serve, whether as a judge, as a school board member, as a senator, as a president of our nation. We want to honor the office that people step into. 
that make decisions that affect us because we know we can't all be a part of that process. And so we pray as a nation for wisdom. We pray as your people for strength, that we would know what is just and right, that we would honor and challenge all at the same time. But Father, we pray that you would help us to never put our trust in any of our human structures, but to trust you the most and to live out of the joy that you desire to give us. In your name we pray.